Welcome to Building the Future. I'm your host, Kevin Hark. You can check out new episodes of the show every Tuesday and Thursday at 2 p.m. If you missed an episode or want to get more information about the show, please visit buildingthefutureshow.com. Welcome back to the show. Today we have Orly Zivi. She's a brand architect. Orly, welcome to the show. I'm excited to, you know, finally get you recorded. We we talked months ago <laughs> and Noah, like we we kind of share a lot of the same views on, on some things and, and you're doing quite a bit of stuff. So maybe before we kind of get into exactly what you're doing, let's get to know you a little bit better and kind of cover your background. Yeah, happy happy to, Kevin, and thank you for having me on the show. I'm actually really excited. Um, so, uh, so let's see. I guess you know, I, I'm. Um, I think first of all, I, I have to preface this by saying that I'm clearly an entrepreneur because um, I I like to do a lot of different things at the same time, and uh, I've been doing that really since I was in school. So I started out as a fine artist. And okay. then I, be, I I trained as a graphic designer because I realized that as much as I loved art, I actually preferred solving other people's problems and not my own. Interesting. So, so what? Graphic design. Yeah. Sorry. What kind of got you passionate about art? Um, was there something kind of growing up, or you just naturally kind oh of my good God. at it? Or yes, um, yes, and yes. Okay. <laughs> so I was always I've been drawing since before I could write. Interesting. And uh, and I grew up all over the world, and my parents literally made it their personal mission to take me to every single museum. Like I've been to literally all the great museums. Really? In Europe. That's awesome. Yeah. So Prado, and you know, I've been in France and Spain, and you know, I've seen Chagall's, and I've seen you know, <laughs> I've seen you know, uh, originals of a lot of things. I've been to the Louvre, and you know, I've been to all these places. And growing up, it just was what we did, and it never occurred to me that it was unusual at all, that sure. that was my background. Uh, and then one other thing that um, I think really influenced me is that my mother was actually an art rep, and she, um, she represented artists, and uh, we got to know some of them personally, and uh, as a result, I have some really beautiful pieces in my home, and, uh, and I think just being surrounded with art all the time just really impacted me. Okay, no, that, that's awesome. Like, I, I think, like a lot of people don't visit that those places in a lifetime, right? And the fact that you got that early on is is awesome, right? And I like that's that's actually quite fascinating. So, uh, kind of what made you kind of make that transition from kind of fine art into being a like a graphic designer? So, um so we're looking now, we're, you know, like uh, early 80s, late late 70s, early 80s, and uh, graphic design at that time was still, people really didn't know what it was, Sure. and it was still fairly under the radar. Like today, you know, everybody's a graphic designer, you know, or everybody just uses the word design, I think, as shorthand. Sure. But back then, you know, I really didn't know much about it, but I love the idea of, at the time, it was this discipline, you know, very process-oriented with also this very much a fine art focus. So this is really how I learned to think like a designer, which of course, you know, fast forward 30 years later, and in fact, I'm using all of the tools that I learned as a graphic design student to do the, um, the work that I'm doing now, which is really facilitating um, alignment workshops and actually doing design thinking workshops. Okay, interesting. That, the thing that fascinates me kind of about your, your background is like a lot of that was probably done, like we have all these fancy machine computers now and software and, and whatnot. And in a lot of cases, it's so much easier than it was kind of back then, right? Because in a lot of cases, you guys were probably what, mailing stuff maybe across the country or to different cities yeah and a lot of it wasn't yeah. done digital at all correct oh so there was no digital sure <laughs> no, no digital. And, you know but actually what i remember you know it's funny that thinking back on this you know and you don't really see it i think one of the things i wanted to mention is you really don't get a sense of what how you got here until you're further along, I think, in your career. And then you can look back and you can say, oh, yeah, I can sort of see how that dot connects to this dot. You know, but at the time, you're just kind of doing what you're doing and you're not really thinking about connecting dots. 
Sure. And um, one of the things that, that really struck me, and I was thinking about this the other day, I think I was trying to tell one of my students, you know, about the, the dinosaur days, you know, before uh-huh. computers. And, uh, you know, they, they, it's like, like you're talking about, you know, another planet. Uh, but at the time, you know, we used to do what we called mechanicals. Are you familiar with that term? Yeah, totally. But for those who aren't, um, do you want, maybe you want to just mention that quick? Yeah, just because I, I think it, it, it goes to your point about digital versus old school or versus traditional. Sure. So because we didn't have computers, it meant that we as designers had to become craftspeople. Totally. So I learned literally how to put together um, a book using boards, you know, which were illustration boards, using uh, tape and pens and and uh, and and um, different kind. I guess uh, at the time, I think we were using wax and and using typesetters, which you know are almost obsolete now. Sure. And I got to the point where I could literally move a period on a on a line of text with an exacto knife. Yeah, that's that's awesome. But I think that's the thing that's kind of lost these days, and is like pe- people these days, and even my like I like myself included. Is it, it's really hard to truly understand the mediums nowadays, and even in the digital space, like there's so many different things to consider now, and it's it's hard, and I almost feel bad for kids kind of coming out of school these days because it's like the the web alone is so complicated, and then you know if you want to be just doing web stuff, you can, and then there's mobile, and then if you want to do print stuff, and like, yeah, they're all design mediums, but how you need to think about it and, and the understanding of each medium is totally different from each other. Yeah, and then, of course, you throw in social media. Totally. And, you know, it's, it's crazy out there. I mean, you know, you have social media now. You've got more than 500 sites, 500 platforms, and it's growing all the time. And people are so overwhelmed. And I'm thinking about... You know, back to, to your question around designers today, I think not only do they have to navigate these rather complex platforms, but they also have to figure out, so, you know, I have a portfolio. How do I show that to people? How do I, how, you know, how, what does a job search look like for a student getting out of school? I mean, we didn't have any of that. You know, it was more like there were these established studios back then, design studios, and, um, and you know, I... Um, I was basically, you know, it was, it was in a way it was easier and harder, if, if you know what I mean. Totally, yep. Right? So, um, and I think my, and I will say that my own, I think my claim to fame as a graphic design student is that I, um, is that um, I went to school with, um, oh my gosh, now of course I'm going to completely blank out on it. Um, <laughs> but he was, he's become a very famous uh, designer in New York, uh, Michael, oh my gosh, wow, Okay. Uh, it'll come back to me. Sure, sure. No, it's all good. Uh, but anyway, um, Michael Beirut, sorry. There you go. Uh, sorry, Michael, if you're listening to this, I'm really sorry about that. that I had a little blip there. Uh, he's a great guy, by the way. But, um, you know, he, he sort of did, I think, the, the path that at the time we all kind of, we all kind of um, aspire to, which is you find, like, the best design studio in New York, which is what he did. He, he got a job there, and now he's a partner at Pentagram, which is one of the top um, design um, or brand agencies in the world, sure. actually. So, um, but you know, now I think with 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 I think what's been lost is because we have access to everything, it's hard to know what to focus on. And in a way, the onus I think is more on students to figure out what they want to do because the possibilities are so much more than they were when we were in school. You know, graphic design was very, it was a scripted kind of experience, I think. And, um, but today, you know, you have to know so many different platforms. You have to understand, you know, how to use Photoshop versus how you're using uh, InDesign or, you know, when you do a PowerPoint, now you have Prezi, you've got all these different uh, tools and the tools are amazing. By the way, I, I am not suggesting for a moment that we go back to the days when we didn't have these tools. Um, quite the contrary, but I think what happens is, and, I, and I'm thinking back on a class that I taught two graphic design students about typography, and it's like to them, you know, you get on the computer, and we all have this, right? You go even in, in, in Word, right? You look in that, and there's the typeface. You know, and you have whatever. I mean, I have probably a thousand typefaces, but let's say even if you have like whatever comes with your software, and then there's auto, 
Well, sure. auto is a completely meaningless, um, it's a meaningless thing. There is no such thing as auto. What, you know, the way the typesetting evolved was back in the printing press days where people actually, uh, typesetters actually used, uh, 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 they used lead. And they actually had, this is why it's called leading. Because sure. they would use units of lead between each line of text. Now, that all of that's lost now. And so, you know, and so if you understand, I think if you understand where things come from, it gives you an appreciation of kind of how we got here. And I think it gives you more, I think it, it feels like you're part of something bigger than just you doing a poster or, or a business card. No, I, 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 totally, I, I totally agree with you on that. And I, I think... It is, it is a good thing. To, I think in kind of any industry that you kind of, if you really want to push something forward, you kind of need to know where it comes from and where it's been and kind of how to use the good things from those different kind of eras to, to push things forward, right? And I think it also yeah. helps you understand the mediums um, a lot better and then even maybe uh, help predict kind of where they're going to go or, you know, maybe even be part of where they're going to go. Yeah. I, I think it also gives you a sense of history that puts you in a time frame, in a, sure. in a timeline. It, it creates, I think, a, a more of a sense of respect for the industry. Um, and what I have found, I mean, you know, now, of course, I'm not really doing design very much anymore. I'm, I'm really focused more on the content component. But even there, it's like, where, you know, where did all this come from? Where even the word content, you know, how about, uh, how about proofing? You know, there's so many, there's this whole um, lost art of actually proofing a page of text. And I had to learn that because that's how we set up type. You know, it wasn't just like we put it in, in, uh, in design uh, and, and then just, you know, formatted. We had to figure out like how many lines of type there were going to be and, you know, what font, what size it needs to be. We had to understand the difference between text size versus display versus a poster, you know, and how different fonts had different, uh, and different uh, fonts had different um, uh, functions in, in communications. And it was really about learning how to communicate. And I think that that, and interestingly, actually to me, is that as we become more digitally sophisticated, we have lost the art of communication, which totally. I think is really ironic. No, I, I, I totally agree. Um, so you're, you're a brand architect and you teach, but for, for people that don't really know what a brand architect is, do you want to maybe kind of cover exactly kind of what, what you do at your company? Sure, sure. So, um, so I, 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 I um, decided to go out as a consultant. I actually had a uh, just to finish up sort of my background. So, sure. you know, after school, I, I freelance. I did a lot of different things. I, I worked at actually the Philadelphia Museum of Art for a couple of years. And, um, and I actually had my own, my own design and marketing communications firm for 14 years. Okay. And so we did very complex. I had a team and we did very complex projects that, you know, lasted for years and did everything from, you know, literally coming up with the content and, and developing programs and, and then communicating about that. And then about 14 years ago, I decided to, um, to do, you know, so I actually wrote myself a mission statement, which is something, by the way, I would really recommend to people who are thinking about going out on their own because it helps clarify kind of what, you know, what means, what matters to you and kind of how you want to approach things. So, for me, was that three prong, the three prong idea of having, you know, I was gonna, I was gonna do the public speaking, which up to then I'd actually never done public speaking, but I somehow, I don't know, it just seemed like a, a, a good sort of next step for me, uh, because public speaking is for me business development, it's how I get clients, and then the teaching for me is something first of all that I love to do because I've, I've always done that, but um, it's also it just gives me credibility, helps me you know, find out what's happening, like, right now and, and really stay on the pulse of things. And then, um, and then finally, the consulting, um, which is, you know, really that's, that's my day job, I guess. Um, and as a brand architect, what, what I mean by that is, you know, just like an architect uh, who, built, who designs buildings is also very well-versed in how to actually, not just how to design buildings, but how to make sure those buildings don't fall down, how to create a whole naming, like, a whole structure of, in this case, a visual visual architecture, if you will, is making sure that 
you know, that it works together, and then they work with the interior designer. They'll, they have to work with construction management folks to figure out, you know, what materials they're going to use. So I kind of took that approach when I went out on my own and okay. decided uh, to do this consulting and sort of thought, so I think a brand, to me, a brand is everything. It's everything you touch. It's everything you see. And more importantly, it's everything you experience. Sure. And um, I just really like the idea of an architect because, it felt to me like it really also spoke to kind of my background and my kind of the, the breadth and depth of the experience I've had up till now. Yeah, no, I, I think that's awesome. And I, I think you touched on something that's really interesting and that I think a lot of people um, forget is like the physical side of a brand and kind of like, like, like what you just mentioned, kind of like how things feel and touch and kind of right. their office space and anything else, right? Where... You know, it's kind of like on and offline and I get people usually specialize in kind of, you know, just the web or mobile or both or, you know, but Mm -hmm. there's there's not a lot of people that kind of do web and and print, at least not really that well because they're they're almost like different, totally different mindsets, right? And I I think that's super important. Yeah, you know, it's funny funny that you say that because... Um, I had I had a, a bit of an aha moment, and I remember this about 15 years ago when I, I could have actually um, gone into web design. You know, I mean, I have, you know, years and years of print design. I, I really do know how to get something on press. I know what you need to do. I know how to change colors and what you do if you add this color to that color. So I'm pretty well versed there. But when the web came on board, what I what I realized, and you know, I'd like to think that I was really that visionary. I don't really believe I was. I think it was more like I just really didn't want to have to learn a whole new a whole new set of skills. Sure. But as it turns out, I did anyway because I have actually done web design. But right. I prefer to leave it to the experts. You know, I, I I need to learn enough. Like, and I think this goes back to this architect approach is that I understand enough about it so I can communicate to someone but not so that I can micromanage them, you know. So for me, it's, I need to really, truly understand how we communicate in these different platforms. And, and to me, it's really, it really comes down to the ease of communication. And, and one of the things that I realized, you know, when everybody who was a designer, I mean, what was happening then, you know, so designers, you know, when the web came on, is designers either stopped being designers or they went into the digital space and they went into online design. Sure. But... Uh, and still, of course, there's still print, although, you know, it's definitely much smaller than it used to be. But for me, it was about the thinking that went behind it, you know. And, and nobody was even, I mean, design thinking, was, you know, we're talking like 15 years ago. Nobody was talking about design thinking. Then. But I, I, for some reason, for me, because I've had this really incredible, um, you know, incredible base of, of learning from being at Cincinnati College of Design, which is, by the way, one of the top design programs that I really want to give them a plug here because it's just an amazing program uh, and they really teach you how to think. Sure, that's and awesome. I realized, you know, and that, so for me, it was really about what do I do next? If I'm not going to become a web designer, then what do I really want to do? And, which is, you know, which is why I did this mission statement. But for me, it was, I really wanted to understand how people communicated. And so it was, you know, very clear to me that to do that, I needed to be a strategic partner to business. Um, and that's really kind of when things took off for me is when I started to, I, I pivoted, you know, I, I've actually pivoted several times since then, but now, you know, how I kind of position myself is that what I do is I help businesses and organizations align their vision with relevant and, and also strategic marketing so they can connect to their ideal customers to help them find them them and refer them. That's really what I do. Interesting. That no, I I think you brought up a couple couple points there that I think um, are worth kind of maybe stressing or or kind of elaborating on a little bit. And the first one to me was the fact that you kind of you you pivoted. You you also changed kind of um, your your career direction. Like you said, you didn't want to move into Mm -hmm. the web. And like I, I think the fact that you're kind of constantly evolving. And, you know, obviously you still are passionate about, you know, design and whatnot, and you might not always do it on every project, if maybe at all anymore, but you still are learning the new mediums, even if you're not, you know, actually doing the design on them. And I think that's super important, right? Because 
Yeah. The more you understand about the entire process of, of whatever you're working on, the better, even if you only do like a small chunk of that, right? And I think that's the one thing that I've found personally in my career, um, kind of being like a digital designer and creative director at a, at a software company, is that a lot of people and even clients and even outside designers that we work with at companies sometimes is, you know, you're doing this mobile thing but they don't really understand mobile or they're trying to argue with you about how Android should be designed when they're an iOS user and they've never actually used an Android device. And you're like, well, you kind of need to, like, you can't argue about something if you don't understand the medium that we're arguing about, right? Right. Yeah, you know what? You're bringing up a point that's very near and dear to my heart. And I think it's one of the reasons why I got into public speaking because, you know, um, I call it the um, the Chinese menu of design. I, I'm sure you've heard of this. Yeah, yeah. Where, you know, right? And this is what happens, and, and, and it's actually one of the things that I find, um, you know, really upsetting about the design field is that designers, for whatever reason, you know, have had a really hard time sort of establishing, you know, how truly valuable they are to our culture, to society, to business. I mean... You think about anything that we touch, own, use, interact with, and design has to be part of that. And But the problem is that design now has been sort of co-opted in a way, and lead and designers are really not in the, in the middle of this conversation. And I, you know, I had had enough years of experience dealing with somebody who would say, well, I want purple because that's the color of my tie. So sure. what I did to counteract that is I learned everything I could about color. So then when, when they would say that, I would say, well, uh, since you are, you know, since you're not in a, lead, you know, if you, if you were a leadership brand, and let me tell you about purple. Purple comes from a purple dye that was, that was found 3,000 years ago, 2,500 years ago in the Mediterranean, and it came from a, a shellfish, and you could only get one drop of purple dye from it, which is why the only people who could afford purple were the very wealthy and the and the, and and the church and religious uh, religious organizations because that was you know and that became in, in kind of in, embedded in people's minds that purple was the color of royalty and so unless so I could I could have these conversations with people and because I was so well versed it was much easier to push back sure. so it wasn't well I think that's a really dumb idea even if on some level you know that it's not the right thing. But this is, I think, the biggest lesson that I've learned over the years is if you want to have a conversation where you are leading it instead of following it, you need to be super educated and you need to be super well-versed in your field so you can show just by the knowledge that you're sharing. And, and, you know, I look at it like every conversation is an opportunity for me to learn and for me to teach. And so... When I would have these conversations with clients, little by little, I realized that I was no longer having those kinds of arguments because they understood that they could kind of step back and let me lead the conversation. And I think what happens with newer, you know, younger designers who haven't had that, it's harder to push back because it really comes, and especially when, you know, there's also this other piece, which is I needed yesterday. Sure. Um, and that's, you know, that's, as of course, if things have speed, sped up because of, because of, of um, you know, the, uh, because of the web and, and just digital media and just in general, you know, mobile, I mean, you know, it used to be, we had, you, it's hard to imagine there was a time when you actually had to wait like four days to get cut to put into a spread for a book. Like, totally. that's unimaginable now. <laughs> yep, <laughs> you know? no, totally. I don't have five minutes after I thought of the idea, but um, I, I sometimes I, I actually feel that I'm very lucky that I was able to kind of come through my career in this way because it's given me an appreciation. I think that someone just going to school now is, go is not going to get. Um, and, uh, and then the other piece, like I said, there, this, this, and this is really kind of how this next pivot happened for me from design school, is I realized that I was having way too many conversations where I'm having to push back on ideas being given to me by somebody who had no understanding of what I was even doing. And so, again, you can't get in that, it's very easy, actually, to get in that place where, well, you know, I'm, I'm misunderstood, and then you've got kind of the angst of the designer thing. Yeah. And I realized that that just wasn't a happy place. And so 
I literally just learned, I mean, I read constantly, constantly, and, I, and I'm always looking at what's going on. In fact, I, I have a project. I still go online, and I, and I look at colors, and I, I really understand, like, what every color means. And so when I have that, which I know, out of all the conversations, it's such a funny one to have. What I realize is that, you know, people really love the idea of being creative, and nobody, of course, would ever say, I mean, whoever tells you that they're not creative, right? Everyone's creative. And sure. the reality, I think, is that everyone is creative in their own way. Totally. The difference is they don't always understand where that their creativity is can be maximized. And so what they try to do, because they don't understand the process, is they end up running the conversation. And that's something that as designers, I think, you know, it's really important to be able to say, wait a second, you know, I'm hearing what you're saying, but let me give you some, some, you know, some background on this. So then when you're having that kind of conversation, then I think clients start to kind of relax and they realize, oh, okay, I'm, I'm talking to somebody who actually knows what they're talking about and I can just let them do their job. Yeah, no, I, I think you're, you're, you're bringing up a really good point because if you can go into a client meeting and you almost basically show, okay, here's the design, Here's why I laid out everything in this design and like, you know, here's how it's going to work in the medium that it, you're, you're do, doing design for. And I know I always go back to the web because that's the medium I know the best. Um, and, you know, it, when I present something, I go in there and it's usually a prototype and, you know, I'll click through the prototype and I'll say, well, here's how it works on a desktop. Here's how it works on a tablet. Here's how it works on a phone. So here's why we didn't do things in a certain way. Here's why we use the colors we use, you know, and you go, you basically go in there and you say like, I did this because of this and this because of that and this because of that. And, and like, you know, here's it working on this device. And then your target market said based on the research that I did or the user groups or the focus groups or based on my experience or a combo of all those things, it, it's done like this. And, you know, let's all forget about our own personal opinions because at the end of the day, yeah, they're relevant, but our target market isn't anybody in this room. And so, like, for example, like if you're doing something for nurses or something and not, nobody in the room is a nurse, well, maybe in some cases they should hate it, right? Because they're not the target market. If you're not a nurse, you might hate it, right? And I think, like, that mindset is... As a designer, if you go in there and you basically can tell them, like, here's why I did everything and it's based on research and the target market and, like, the medium that it's going to be for, they almost can't say, like, change something because you covered well, you know, all the bases. Do you agree? Yeah, uh, you're, I mean, uh, what you're actually, you know, um, Kevin, what you're actually describing is called design, the design thinking process. That's exactly what design, the design process is all about. If you break it down, and and I'm sure you know IDEO. I mean, this is this is what they talk about all the time. And 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 what I find really interesting is that when you and when you follow the process, you always get innovative innovative solutions because it cannot fail. Because if you ask the people, if you ask you, and this is really how I also build my um, my my alignment workshop and how I I do the kind of work I do. Which is really based very much on a design uh, on a design model. Which is first, I need to actually understand what your vision is, and the only people who know that are not the people who are the managers. Um, nothing, nothing against managers, no disrespect there, but it's the, it's the founders. They're the only ones who have a vision because they're the ones who founded the company. Totally. So, um, so I need to get that right away, and then what I need to do, and I'm actually doing a workshop next week for for a national nonprofit and we're bringing people in from, you know, cross disciplines. And, you know, the idea is to kind of get everybody aligned with that so they actually understand why their vision is meaningful to them and how they can use it in their day job so that it feels like every time you're doing something, you're in some way supporting that vision. That piece is often overlooked, which is why so many companies, you know, they, they'll, they'll work with a team, they'll work with a really good design firm or branding agency, and then they just send out like a, you know, uh, uh, an email or put something up on, on the wall and says, okay, these are core values. And, you know, I, I have to tell you, the core value piece, I, it makes me smile because, you know, a core value, I mean, how many core values can you really have? You know, you're not going to have 10. Those are not core values. Those are just how you do business. 
um, you know, and, and, and you know, custom, being great at customer service, well, maybe if you're the Ritz Carlton, because they literally wrote the book on customer service, literally and figuratively, sure. because they do it as part of the DNA of the organization. But, you know, customer service as a rule is not a core value, unless you're, unless you're Ritz Carlton. Sure. But what you have to do is also not just find a core value that, that sounds good, but is actually authentic. No, that's... So, um, I'm just, Right. So one of the things, you know, and, and I did this, so I, I went back to school, actually, and I, I went back to grad school and, um, and I got an MBA in strategic design from Philadelphia University, which is actually an amazing program. And um, they um, they actually uh, modeled the program after the D school, the design school at Stanford. Oh, very so cool. the idea is that, yeah, it's really cool. And uh, it's like it's the first program of its kind on the East Coast, actually. So. Uh, very, very proud to be a uh, graduate of that program. And one of the things that I learned is that there's this idea of, you know, how do you, how do you make sure that, you know, you really are operating from this authentic place? And it comes back to storytelling. So we did a lot of, we worked a lot on stories, you know, really thinking about storytelling and, you know, and that gets into personas and, and that goes directly to what you were saying about understanding your customers. So if nurses are your customers, and you never talk to nurses, you have, and more importantly, if you never watch a nurse actually doing his or her job, you have no idea what real problems they're working with. It's just an idea of something you're thinking about. Totally. But to really fully be able to create, um, to create either a product or service or even messaging from around your hospital or, you know, if it's a nursing association, you need to understand a day in the life, you know, totally. and be able, right. And then, and then the other piece of course is you have to be able to translate it, translate that into marketing language so that a lay person can look at that and go, got it. Like that for me, when somebody says that to me, I know I've done a good job. No, I, I think that's awesome. And I, I think the thing that I, I love about you as well is that you're you're so passionate about constantly learning and you've been in this industry for for a long time, right? And I think a lot yeah. of people for lack of a better term almost like give up on learning and and they they just seem like, well, this is how I've done it forever and I don't really care about what's new. And it's like, well, and then they wonder why they're they're not relevant or don't have a job in a few years, right? And that's right. been something that's always fascinated me, and and mm. and like I love the fact that you you went back to school, that you started your own thing, and I know you've kind of mentioned um kind of throughout kind of the interview that that you, you teach. So maybe I'm I'm kind of curious to know a bit more about exactly like what you teach, where you teach it at, because because you're you're doing you're teaching at kind of a bunch of different th places. Yeah, so I actually I taught in design programs for a very long time. Right. Um, then uh, and then a couple and then really the reason I went back to school is because my thought was uh, that I would teach full time. So so I got this MBA and I literally went from like getting the MBA to Drexel and they just so happened that they were starting the um, the, the they were launching the the closed school of entrepreneurship, which is this amazing amazing thing. So Drexel. Um, has identified that entrepreneurship is where we're all going. Right. And they built it. It's the first standalone school of entrepreneurship in the United States. That's awesome. It has its own its own administrative. It's like literally a standalone. That's very unusual, right? So, sure. And what they're, what they're doing is actually taking it a step further, which is to integrate entrepreneurship into all of the, all of the different, um, different academic uh, programs. Really? So that everyone who goes to Drexel will have to take a, a, a course in entrepreneurship, which I think is just brilliant. Totally. So, um, so I, I've really, honestly, I, I feel so lucky. I'm, I'm really blessed, actually. I was able to get this uh, position. So I'm, I'm working in the School of Entrepreneurship at Drexel, and I, uh, I'm working with Chuck Sacco, who's the assistant dean there, and he, um, he teaches a course called Launch It, and I've been mentoring students. This is now going to be my fourth or fifth class, and I get to work with these super passionate, super smart students who have an idea, and I help them identify their value proposition, come up with the messaging, even look at their name, and then develop their pitch deck so that they can be ready 
when there's a competition, pitch competition, some of them actually go on to actually have a real business. And that's just been, it's just been a blast. So I've really enjoyed that. And then at the same time, I also, this last year, I started teaching in the Fox School of Business at Temple, where I teach a course on business and ethics. Uh, and in, right now is just an amazing time to be teaching that course because of, of course, what's happening with the Panama Papers. So, you know, I think teaching for me is a way that I stay engaged with what's happening right now. And also, I think working with, um, you know, millennials or, you know, with younger, younger folks, um, you know, I, I get older, but they stay the same age, you know. <laughs> kind of a funny, funny thing, you know. And now that my kids are of that age, it's like, oh, okay, I get that, you know. But, um, but you know, they're so excited and they're so passionate. And I think it's part of what keeps me passionate about what I do. And also, um, because I work with so many entrepreneurs, and entrepreneurs, by their very, by their very definition, are incredibly passionate. Otherwise, they wouldn't be doing what they're doing. Sure. No, I, I think that's awesome. And the the thing that's that's interesting about kind of teaching, and I've done a little bit as well. And the thing that I got out of it is, you almost like yeah, you're you're giving them kind of you know obviously you're you're trying to teach them stuff. But what the thing that I didn't realize until I did it was, you almost you learn a lot from them as well, right? And you do. That's if the, you're open to. It, by the way. Yeah, that's fair. Point, have to be open to it. And you also have to be willing to hear what they have to say and not immediately shut them down because, you know, that, that really closes the conversation very quickly. But, yes, you're absolutely correct. Sure. So I, I know you kind of mentioned that you're, you're, you're working on kind of blog posts and, and a book. Um, do you kind of want to maybe cover, like, the, the types of stuff that you, you kind of co are covering in that or, and are going to cover? Oh, yeah, yeah. So um, the book is something that I just I started. I've been thinking about writing a book literally for five years. Okay. And and what one of the things that came out of my graduate program is that I finally decided, okay, I'm going to write this book. Okay. And so what um, at first it was really going to be more about my experience and the many companies I've worked with, and and then I realized that that would make it too much about me. And what I really what I really love about my job is that I get to help other people be successful and that they are telling me their stories and my job is really to translate that and to give them, you know, sort of their best self, if you will. Sure. And so I decided that what I needed to do was that I was going to uh, interview entrepreneurs and to date I've interviewed uh, 17. That's awesome. And Congrats. my goal is, thank you. Yeah, it's, it's actually been awesome and people have been so helpful and you know, I'm, I'm, I'm reaching out to people on Twitter and LinkedIn. I have now, I'm at, uh, as of today, I'm at 1630 followers on Twitter. Well, that's awesome. Um, which for me is, I know, for me that's a huge accomplishment because I literally only got on Twitter uh, a year ago. Sure. No, that so, that's awesome. Like, to be fair, that's how I get most of my guests for the show um, is LinkedIn right, and Twitter. Right, that's how you and I connected. I forgot. That's right. Yeah, like, that's how you and I met. So, I, I exactly. love that, right? And the fact that um, we live too. in different countries and across the, you know, in different parts of the world is, like, I love that, right? And and that's what I love about doing the show as well is just being able to connect with people and have conversations about with people about, you know, well, in your case, like, design, right? I, I love that. And, and it sounds like you share kind of the same passion when you've been interviewing other people. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. I mean... My job, so when I, it's interesting because having been on the other end of that, you know, one of the things that I ask every person that I speak to is, um, is what advice would you give other entrepreneurs? Sure. And the, the thing that, you know, and, you know, part of, of course, what I'm going to do is, is to synthesize all the responses. And, you know, I've got a framework. I'm, I'm actually, there's going to be 10 chapters, and each chapter is going to be dealing with another aspect of some, you know, misconceptions perhaps or some, um, some ideas around marketing, and then, um, but really for me, the book is the stories of these entrepreneurs. That's awesome. And what I'm, what I'm enjoying so much about it is, you know, what I hear over and over again is exactly what I hoped I would hear that would, you know, I guess going into it thinking about some of the things that I had witnessed. One is I wish I'd started sooner. Sure. And the other one is I wish I'd done a better job identifying my target market and identifying who actually was our target, right? And what they really wanted, because 
we played, in fact, I, I just had a conversation not too long ago with an entrepreneur who ended up closing their business, even though they were super successful. But they couldn't scale it because it turned out that they had been marketing to the wrong, uh, the wrong customer all along. Like they thought they had a strategic partnership and they, were, they spent a lot of money and a lot of time developing messaging that in the end didn't get them what they wanted because they weren't actually saying things like the right thing to the right person at the right time. You know, oh, wow. so wow. that's interesting. I found that really, really compelling. That really the beginning, and this is this is kind of at the core of my book. And in fact, I'm I'm writing a blog post specifically on this, which is on personal brand, because in the beginning, you know, the founder is the brand. Sure. And so, what founders don't realize is that their story is what makes them different. Why they started a company is what pe- people actually want to know. This. Because especially one of the things I find so interesting about millennials as a group, and, and you know, of course, I'm generalizing here, but sure. that certainly has been my experience with my students, that they really, truly care about the brands they buy, they, they, the brands they associate themselves with, and they actually want to know what these people believe. They want to know what, you know, what they do, how they treat their employees, how they treat people um, abroad, and how, you know, what the supply chain looks like. And, you know, they're really concerned about this. And so... To me, authenticity is such a big part of branding that what what founders don't realize is they've got this already right here, and they're not even they're not even tapping into it. And then the other piece that I find really interesting is that they will hire an intern to build their social social media feed. Now, to me, that makes absolutely no sense because social media is the way that it's, it's our elevator pitch, right? We no longer have elevators; we have platforms. Sure. We have Facebook, we have Twitter, we have LinkedIn. That's that's our opportunity for, for elevator pitches. And so what what owners are actually doing is they're handing that over to someone who doesn't know their story and then they're trusting a twenty five year old to somehow be able to to tell their story in a way that's meaningful and relevant. And I, I just find that, you know, I, I just don't think that's a good idea. You know, in, in my book one of the things that I'm going to talk about is kind of the role of social media. Uh, And in my viewpoint, um, it really, especially if you're trying to build uh, thought leadership, uh, and certainly in the B2B world, it's really important that the owner either is writing the content or is working with a professional copywriter to to create the content. No, I I think that's really good advice. So I I know you're still working on it, but have you kind of picked a tentative release date or month and, and a title? So, you know, it's funny. I thought I had the title. All right. <laughs> the title has changed dramatically. But what I'm going to be, what I'm actually describing, what I'm hoping this will be, is the, the companion piece to the Lean, uh, Lean Startup. Okay. Which is a book by Eric Reese and the whole uh, Lean, um, Lean Business Model movement, which was actually um, started by Steve Blank, who's a very successful serial entrepreneur in uh, Silicon Valley. And um, and there's lots of articles about lean marketing. As I, you know, I've been, I've been doing research on it. But for me, it's like I want to write the book. The book for me is, you know, what do you do those first three years when you're starting a business? Because year one to three are so critical. And by the time you get to year five, if you're going to make it, right? Because, of course, we know, I think it's some, what is it, like 95% of startups fail in the oh, first sure. year. Some, yep. It's really high. Yep. Um, and, so, and so part of, I guess, what kind of motivates me is that I'd like to maybe have a little bit to do with maybe changing that. And I think understanding marketing and understanding the power of social media and the power of, you know, good messaging and, and really a strong branding uh, presence is huge. I, I mean, if you think about any power brand, I mean, even Nike, you know, I'm sure you know what Nike, the name means and sure. you know, all of that, but... Um, you know, Nike didn't get, and, and you know, it's funny because I actually used them in one of my blog posts, which I call the Nike syndrome, because of so many companies say, and I've heard this, well, you know, we're not as big as Nike. So basically, you know, somehow marketing gets left off the table because we don't have that kind of money. Sure. And the reality is that it took Nike 20 years to become Nike. <laughs> yeah. yeah, no, totally. And had, they, right? and had they started early, like I'm, I'm hearing and, and talking to these entrepreneurs, it wouldn't have taken them 20 years. Totally. <laughs> so, so this is my, you know, this is my, you know, I, I, my, my own kind of anecdotal evidence has been that 
in fact, the role of lean marketing and the role that I hope my book will have in the success of entrepreneurs is to, to stop asking the question that we'll do it when we have money, which I hear all the time. Yeah, when we have money, we'll do marketing. But that's the wrong question to be asking. It's not when will I have money, but what do I need to do now so I'm prepared when I'm ready to scale up my business? Totally. Because most entrepreneurs, right? I mean, it, whether you end up being acquired or, you know, you sell. I mean, there's an, a lot of entrepreneurs, certainly in the tech world, you know, it's like, oh, we want, we want someone to buy us for $2 billion. Well, how do you think that that's going to happen? You know, totally. so... I'd no. like marketing to take its rightful place in that equation. Well, and there's a lot of ways to market yourself that don't have to cost you like an arm and a leg, oh, right? Like I think that's what people forget, right? And they also, I think, forget the role of marketing. See, to me, this is why, again, this is why I'm writing this book because for me, the role of marketing in the beginning has nothing to, it's really not what's going to happen later. Uh, sure. One of the things that, that I love about um, that um, that Steve Blank actually said is that, that startups are not just smaller versions of bigger companies. They're a completely different animal. It's a completely different ecosystem. You can't, this is why the lean, the lean startup was, was, was written because people, you know, are, were used to these very antiquated, very long, I mean, you know, writing a business plan that takes a year. By the time you start implementing it, your entire market has changed and you've missed the windows because we now live in a world where things are happening so fast. Totally. So I would love to see, you know, but, but he doesn't talk about marketing at all um, or, or, the, or the, 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 the value of branding. I mean, branding to me, if you're going to spend any money, don't spend it on a logo in the first six months of your business. People agonize over this. And I, since I work with a lot of startups, one of the first things I say to them, I say, you know what? Why don't you wait until you actually know what it is you've built and then hire a professional. Don't get a logo for 19 bucks on, on, on sure. the web. And hire someone who really knows what they're doing to build you a true identity that could take you for the next 20 years. But in the beginning, what you should really be focusing is identifying what is this, this thing that you've built. And uh, one, of my, one of the people that I was my go-to is Simon Sinek. Do you know him? Yeah, yeah. Well, of him, so I should I actually, say. Yeah, I love him. I actually got to meet him. He was here at the Ritz-Carlton in Philadelphia. And I That's had awesome. I really pleasure of meeting him. And, you know, it was like, it was like I don't know, like some kind of semi-god walking into the room. He was literally like the, <laughs> the crowd parted, you know. That's awesome. Something. It was, he was great. I really, I really enjoyed talking to him. But, um, but, you know, what, what I find really interesting about it, what he talked about is this whole idea that people don't buy what you sell, they buy why you, why you sell it. And this why is one of the hardest things to do well. And, you know, he, he actually, I mean, I'm sure you've seen his TED Talk, which I think is like the number one and number two of yeah, all time. Yeah, it's up there, yeah. I, I don't know how many million hits he's gotten on it, but... Um, but what I love about that is, you know, when he talks about Apple, I mean, yeah, we, you know, we talk about, well, why is Apple so expensive? Well, one of the aspects, and, and this is actually part of the, the research I've done, I, um, I've read, read a lot about, of course, how you build brands. And David Acker, who uh, I believe teaches in the Kellogg School of Business, he, um, so he's written several books on brands. He's also on YouTube. And he says that being expensive is actually connected to your brand uh, and if you are a, a luxury brand and you can show that and people believe it and they see it and you create that kind of experience, the expectation is that it needs to be more expensive. Sure. And in a way, you think about it, if a, you know, if a, if a MacBook was 500 bucks, I don't know if we value it as much. No, totally. You know? and you're right. What, and plus what you're buying is not just the guts of it, but all the engineering that went into it, the R&D that went into the, the ease of use. I mean, that's one of the things that, not, that uh, Apple is really known for is that because they put design at the, at the core of that experience. Totally. And they always have. And, um, in fact, one of the things many years ago I said, I, I can't remember where I saw this study, but there was actually, I mean, I'm sure there have been several that, uh, studies done that show that if you take everything else being equal, and the only differentiator is in design. In other words, that the organization uses design as a core principle. They are always more successful than the ones that don't. No, I, I, 
no, I, I totally agree with you. I, I think that that's really good good advice, and I, I kind of love your, your take on kind of the whole space and, and the whole kind of industry, and that's really why I wanted to have you on the show, but we're kind of coming to the end of the show, so do you want to maybe close the show with promoting where people can kind of find you online? Great. Great. So um, thank you. Yeah, so um, we'd love for people to follow me on Twitter, and that's just uh, hashtag, or I guess is it and, I guess it's hashtag. It's Orly, it's just Orly Zewi, my whole name, O-R-L-Y-Z-E-E-W-Y. Uh, one of the great things about having an unusual name is it's really easy to get URLs. And, sure. <laughs> no, that's <laughs> awesome. So, uh, and then my well, my website is just simply zwi.com. Perfect. Well, I really appreciate it. And then I'm on oh, LinkedIn. Go ahead, sorry. Oh, no, sorry. The only other thing is, like I said, so I'm on LinkedIn. And once I have my book further along, then I'm going to then I'm gonna set up a Facebook page. Sure. Um, and to finish up with that, so uh, my, my goal is by the end of June to pitch it to uh, publishers. Okay. And hopefully by the fall, having it in production so oh. that I could have it maybe beginning of, of 2017 or end of 2016. That's my goal. You know, we'll have to wait and see, but I'm, I'm trying to sort of stick to that, that schedule. Sure. No, that's awesome. And I, I love the, the fact that, you know, you, you kind of, we, we talk about stuff that isn't necessarily out just yet and kind of the, what you've been going through with naming changes and whatnot. I, I love that. Right. And it, like, I love the like real <laughs> side of, of building something. Right. And, and, and that's, that's really cool. But, uh, I do appreciate, you know, you taking the time out of your busy schedule to be on the show, and I look forward to keeping in touch with you, and I'm excited to check out the book when it comes out. Yeah, thank you. Thank you very much. Yeah, maybe you can bring me back, and I can, uh, I can tell you more about it. Once I actually figure out, you know, all the ins and outs of it, it's still, like you, like you said, it's, in, it's a process, you know, it's in the work. So Sure, that's awesome. Well, thank you so much, Kevin. I, I really appreciate being asked to, to be on the show, and I've enjoyed our conversation. Yeah, it was awesome. Um, yeah, thanks again, and we'll talk soon. Sounds good. Okay. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening. The music for the show is done by Electric Mantra. You can check them out at electricmantra.com. And keep building the future. Music.